0: The the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his debut appearance on the program as a contributor to Fangraphs.com and also a doctor of jurisprudence, it's Nathaniel Groh. Nathaniel Groh is the guest. Groh serves also as a professor of legal studies at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business and considers for Fangraphs those areas uh, within which baseball and the law intersect. And what follows, uh, besides a number of frivolous questions I ask him regarding the law, Grow answers questions regarding some of the more prominent instances of uh, baseball and law intersecting of late. The Garber case, for example. This is a case of class action lawsuit that challenges baseball's right to dictate exclusive local broadcasting rights. We discussed that uh, in some depth. The case more recently, and in, uh, in fact, it's so recent, uh, Grow has not had an opportunity uh, to cover it, uh, but the case of uh, Chris Correa and the St. Louis Cardinals hacking uh, into the Houston Astros ground control system the likely or at least possible ramifications of that. Uh, and, and of course, the um, on a more whimsical note, the legal implications of throwing a baby out with bathwater. A literal baby with literal bathwater. All of that examined in scrutinous detail of what follows. It doesn't follow immediately, however, because what is following immediately is the sponsor's message. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel or DraftKings? Those are mostly legal daily fantasy services. Draft is similar, except it possesses uh, this one virtue insofar as it's the first such daily fantasy service designed exclusively for mobile devices. Here's how it works. After downloading the app, here's how it works, I should say. After downloading the app, you find an opponent. This could be a friend of yours or an internet stranger. Either way, registered as part of the draft universe. You pick the sport in which you'll be competing. You each select five players by means of a snake draft. The players you've selected accrue fantasy points, and whichever you or your opponent have uh, accrued the most points. Uh, you were the winner. He, she, or it is the winner. It's like fantasy sports because you've played those before. Uh, one thing you may not have done in other fantasy sports is to wager American currency. That's something that you're able to do by means of draft. It also deserves uh, some note that this does not apply merely to baseball. Why would it? We are in the midst of winter. I'm looking at my window onto a wintry landscape. That's how I know it's winter. In fact, hockey and basketball and uh, professional football are also available for gaming, uh, as far as it's concerned. Now, Bernie, with curiosity, you wonder how you might acquire this app. Well, wh- what you do is, if you have a device that uses the iOS operating system, you go to the App Store. Uh, contrary if you have an Android device, you go to Google Play or something like Google Play. With which comment I've uh, completed, the sponsor's message, and I'm now uh, ready to see you off to a conversation with the saying, What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature that same Nathaniel Grow, and it begins right now. excites me most about you is besides your what I assume is an unerring knowledge of the law, although honestly you could be lying in every post that you write.
1: Exactly. Nobody
0: would know. No, I I certainly wouldn't know. Yeah, um, I've studied the law for zero years. Um, But your prose is the cleanest to appear. People may not know this um, because uh, in some cases they see only an edited version of a text. But your prose, I barely have to do anything to it when it comes across my computer screen. Well,
1: I try to make it easy for you.
0: You... You are I, I derive so much joy from it, and it's not as though you are merely putting together uh, very easy sentences, you know, subject verb object. You uh, you have you have compelling sentences, excellent paragraphs, and uh, and they're all flawless in terms of usage.
1: Well, I appreciate that. My dad was a, a former journalist in one lifetime, and he like throughout high school would just. Destroy anything I wrote with red ink, and eventually some of the lessons started to sink through. So I, I give a lot of the credit to him.
0: Were you uh, Were you a reader? Um,
1: I, I know how to read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't describe myself as like a voracious reader or anything, but I yeah, enough.
0: Yeah, well, because I'll tell you. So I there's sort of essentially two lives to my life is before before high school I I hardly read at all. Uh, and even maybe up to the middle of high school, and then I started to read quite a lot. Um, but at one point, embarrassingly, I was uh, – one of my friends in my actual English class was asked by my English teacher to tutor me, and uh, and that was embarrassing because she was my friend and also my same age, and uh, she would just look at my papers and be like, why are you doing this? Why do you write sentences like this? And I was like, I don't know. And I was like, how do you know how to write them correctly? And she was just like, I just read a lot as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I think I think that helps and uh, for me getting edited is is really helps too because eventually you take on the whatever voice the editor has and hopefully it's a good voice that you're you're picking up um yeah. lessons from.
0: Yeah, ideally it is. Yeah, but it's well, congratulations to your father then too. His I'm assuming that uh his usage is uh, is spotless and without spot as well.
1: Yeah, he's a very good writer.
0: Okay. Now listen, uh it let's uh, by way of understanding your CV Let's. See. Uh, you, you can't submit it. You can't submit it for perusal. To, although it's probably available on the internet somewhere, I imagine, right?
1: Yeah, it is. If, you, if you Google it.
0: You're an academic, so you, you see your CV is everywhere.
1: It's public knowledge.
0: It is. Yeah. Um. You are. You're a professor at the University of Georgia. Does that sound right? I am. Yes. yeah. Yes. Now you deal. Sorry, you're a professor. You have a. Uh, an intimate knowledge of the law, but you work out of the business school. Can you is that is that right? And if so, can you explain how that works?
1: Yeah. So basically, I teach primarily undergraduate business students at the University of Georgia in the Terry College of Business, and um, we have a variety of different classes that we offer. So some of them are, you know, introductory kind of survey what you know a business person should rudimentary understand about the law and you know what a contract is how to you know draft one etc and then um and we've got some more specialized upper level courses for students who are either interested in furthering their legal knowledge or potentially going on to law school so we kind of have a mix of different levels of sophistication of class and you know most people when you think of teaching law at a university you usually think of a law school but there's actually a fair number of um Business school law professors, just because business schools have to have at least a little bit of a legal aspect in their curriculum in order to be um, accredited.
0: Oh yeah, that that makes sense. And of course, um, well, I know that I've had friends who've gone on to work in law firms, and frequently they're working. Well, I guess I mean technically they're working law firms, but they're, they're if they are, are they're corporate lawyers. Does that sound right? Does that sound yep. like a thing? Yeah, it is a thing. It for better thing. or worse.
1: Yeah, and they <laughs>
0: uh, their job. Well before one of them has already left it just seems like these people get burned out very quickly
1: yeah it's it's I always tell people it's a really good lifestyle if you can hack it, you know you get to do interesting stuff, you make a lot of money if that's your thing it's viewed as relatively prestigious, you know but it's, it really does take a toll, especially on the at the big law firms working for the big clients it's pretty demanding
0: yes that and and if you have any aspirations of Creating a family, and you'd like to see your your children at any point, and your spouse, then uh, it it seems to create difficulties as far as that's concerned as well.
1: Yeah, that was kind of my sense when I was in on that side of things and working in a firm. It was, you know, people they, they, you you can make time for it, but it's definitely more of a challenge.
0: Um, okay, here's a uh, here's a rudimentary law question uh, that I've never bothered to look up. Uh, what is tort law?
1: So tort law is basically the law of personal injuries, mm-hmm. or whether it's physical injuries, emotional, spiritual, sometimes you know, pain and suffering, those sorts of things. So whenever you see the, you know, the lawyer on TV or the billboard on the road talking about, you know, car accidents and all that stuff, that's basically tort law.
0: Can I? Um, I I don't know if, uh, how much evidence I have, but can I sue my wife uh, on those grounds?
1: potentially depending on what she's done to you Um, for you know there's all basically for torts there's a series of different torts that courts have recognized so there's um, you know assault and battery if your wife you know beats you regularly you could sue her for Mm, that if if um, if there there's torts of you know emotional damage so if people do really messed up things to one another and tend to cause psychological damage then you can sue them for those so it's potential
0: what's that one called again
1: that would be intentional infliction of emotional distress.
0: Yes, I think it is. Although I think she's really smart about it because she doesn't do anything particularly conspicuous. But it's just sort of like a a, a day in, day out, a sort of it's it is very disorienting.
1: Subtle,
0: subtle, proof. yeah, yeah.
1: Potentially, you could have a lawsuit on your hands if you wanted one.
0: Do I need to uh, do I need to have some record of her uh, of her her sort of uh, emotional terrorism now?
1: That definitely helps, although, you know, you can sue anybody for basically anything, and then the question is just, will they settle with you and pay you to go away? So, the more evidence you have, the better, but it's probably not a prerequisite for some attorneys.
0: And, uh, among here, here's the, towards the end of my frivolous questions, and it actually involves that word, uh, how come, it seems that the threshold for Declaring a lawsuit frivolous is rather high or low, depending how you think of it in the United States. My point is that there's a lot of litigation, and it doesn't seem like all of it is merited. Is is our are our standards for frivolous lawsuit different than other countries?
1: Um, Yeah, in a couple ways. So I mean, some of it's in the eye of the beholder, right? You know, if if you really think you've been wronged in some way and you're filing suit, other people might think it's kind of ridiculous, but to you, it you know, it doesn't seem as frivolous. That's kind of the standard defense, or the plaintiff's attorney you know line um some of it in the one big difference in in other countries is that the loser typically pays the winner or the yeah the loser pays the winner's legal expenses and so if i sue you and it's totally meritless and then we lose and i've got to put the bill for the lawyer you hired and all the time they put in in the united states that's pretty rare to have the loser pay and so in a lot of times you know, there's not as much of a disincentive for me to file a lawsuit because as long as I can pay my attorney, I don't have to worry about your legal fees. I think that probably drives some of it in the minds of um, many.
0: Yeah, it seems. I mean, it does seem as though there's there's some uh, benefit. This is I'm a moron saying these words, believe me. Uh, but it does seem there's some benefit because it gives a sort of like baseline amount of power to everyone if they can bring a lawsuit. But at the same time, like I was in uh, my wife and I a couple of years ago were in on the coast of Croatia, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we were just at a um like a little cafe that was along the water, and there's just a there's a set of stairs like you'd see going into a pool, right There's just a set of stairs going from a rocky ledge like into the water and i and I said, well that is beautiful, that is great. I bet the people here enjoy it. If that were in the United States, the first person well, it wouldn't exist because if someone were injured on it, they would sue the cafe immediately. Yeah,
1: exactly, and, you know, depending on your point of view, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, right? You know, people know that they're going to get sued, and they take greater steps to make things safe, but you lose some charm to things, you know, when that happens, too. You know, like, we've got a three-year-old, and every single playground on Earth now has got all, you know, rubber padding, so if they fall, they don't get hurt, and they're all just, you know, the same kind of, you know, standard plastic equipment, and you kind of lose some of that charm of, you know, the... Old school wooden, you know, yeah, with crap all the that people uh, used to play on and all that, yeah, but you know, it's, it, it, I guess teach their own. own
0: yeah, life. I think I received my first concussion on the playground. Exactly. You know, I, you know, you're nostalgic for that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I so um, am I allowed to ask you? Am I allowed to ask you uh, any questions as to where uh, baseball and law intersect? Yes. Okay, well, let's try that out. I, I do want to ask you about your most recent piece regarding the uh, the future of televised baseball. I, I want to begin, um, and you feel like if, if you're tipping your hand for a post you're going to be writing in the future, that's fine. But the, uh, probably the most notable uh, situation in which the, the law and baseball have intersected recently is in the case of the St. Louis Cardinals, the Houston Astros, and uh, the scouting director for the former of those clubs – the former scouting director for the former of those clubs, Chris Correa, um, who utilized, I guess, whatever sort of knowledge he had um, of John Mozeliak's login information uh, to f- to find out about uh, information in the Astros. Uh, what the Astros? Their sort of uh, what's the word for it? Their database. Their their organizational database.
1: Yes, ground control.
0: Right, okay. And do, are we calling, is that what it is? Is the a database, their information system? What, how do you, is there a legal term for it? That's a good
1: question. I've never accessed the system personally, so I'm not sure what all is on there. But from the sounds of it, it sounds like it was kind of a, I don't know, if it, it might not have like messaging capabilities from what they said, but it sounded like it was just kind of a, the place where, People out on the road could log in and, you know, file reports on, you know, scouts could file reports and, you know, front office people could log on and see what their, what the team's records were on players. So it seemed like kind of a centralized information system, I guess, for all the team's, you know, internal records and knowledge.
0: Now, so <clears throat> as someone who's a spouse, I've definitely, for example, logged into my wife's email account, perhaps even without her knowing, something I say freely because I know that she's not in the house right now. Um, and I've I've definitely done it with an ex-girlfriend before. I mean, that's that's an absolute fact. And those sorts of crimes seem, I mean, they are miserable on the one hand. They they reveal the intentions of a of a small petty man, which would be me in that particular case. But they also don't seem like they don't seem particularly grievous from a legal standpoint. Um, on the other hand, I do know that uh, sort of like hacking, especially if that information is potentially worth. Like actual real dollars to the injured party uh, could be quite a serious offense. and I, so I guess the, the weird thing about this case right or if it's not a case proper yet, what what you know what will what will become a case uh, occupies like a strange middle ground between those two things, right between someone just like using the knowledge of another person's password to gain you know what could be petty information or alternatively like a high level you know high level espionage.
1: Yeah, I think what I think what's interesting. Well, first thing I'd say is I probably wouldn't admit on the internet that you've hacked into your girlfriend or wife's email accounts because that does admit to a federal crime.
0: I shouldn't. So uh, I shouldn't do that, huh?
1: I, I probably would not do that. It, I'm not your attorney, but that would be my. <laughs> now would she advice.
0: would she have to bring? Would it have to be her who brought charges though? Um,
1: that's a good question. I think. There might be statute of limitations issues involved, like mm-hmm. how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but potentially she could—that's I, I, a good question. Could well, she? I don't she wanna... could
0: use this as evidence that I checked. Uh, that I checked her email one time.
1: She could, unless you could convince the court that you're lying right now about doing it for comedic or other purposes.
0: This is a, uh, I mean, this is essentially uh, performance art. So I think exactly. Uh, It's—I mean. Yeah. To the degree that everything is fiction, this is even more fiction.
1: I would I would go that route. Okay, yeah,
0: that's going to be my defense. I appreciate it.
1: Yes, um, and yeah, you know, actually, potentially could, but I think most of these cases are government, especially in a case where it's just I access the computer, I did not necessarily get any valuable information. You know, mm-hmm. I had corporate espionage types. I think it's cases. I think it's more government prosecuting you rather than the victim suing. But I could be wrong on that. But point being, um, <laughs> what was interesting about the Astros and the Cardinals cases, I think before Friday when Chris Correa, I'm assuming it's Correa. Let's say Correa. Correa, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah um, was formally charged in Houston court. People didn't really know what had gone on and they assumed, oh, he, you know, kind of transposed an old, password that Jeff Lunow used and got access to the system, but what the documents that the federal government revealed showed that it was pretty much a little bit or not pretty much a little bit more intense than that. He at one point the Astros had forced everybody to change their passwords to ground control and then he re quote unquote hacked into somebody's email and got the new password and the new URL for the new system. And so it was there was definitely more of a intent to continue to access the system than you know initial reports that maybe led people to believe
0: yeah, and I guess so that so that reveals uh, a, certainly a partial answer um, and perhaps a full answer to to the the sort of question which I probably asked poorly at first, and which i'll d- try and get more specific about here is it at some level there has to be the perpetrator right the the wrongdoer uh, ha- you think that they there's always a sense that they know how bad is the thing that they're doing. And I feel like this is a certain type of crime where you may not be aware of the consequences of your actions in terms of a, a, a possible punishment.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize is necessarily a crime. And I think it, it, I think the courts recognize that. I mean, they don't want to say that if it's just, you know, hacking into your girlfriend's email account that that's okay. But part of what they take into consideration is what's the value, the economic value of the information that you're Receiving, in the, the Astros case, they uh, estimated the value of the materials that Correa saw at $1.7 million, um, which they basically said he saw all their draft reports on every draft prospect they'd looked at for, I believe, a period of two different draft cycles, um, looked at those during the draft even to see what, you know, where Houston stood before day three of the draft one year, so some pretty intense stuff that... You know, some might definitely argue it was valuable, valued at more than $1.7 million in the baseball industry, but that's kind of where the federal government placed it. And I think that helps drive the potential length of the sentence, the, you know, the perceived seriousness of the crime is how valuable was the stuff you're accessing and what, did, what were your intentions on – what were you intending to do with it?
0: How did they – do you know uh, – well, first of all, who, who placed the value of 1.7, million and, and how did that party go about doing it?
1: The federal government, the prosecutors valued it at that, and they, as I recall from the indictment, they said that it was based on Houston's, I believe it was Houston's draft budget, or no, scouting budget for the year. And oh, so okay. they said if Houston's paying its scouts 1.7 million, then that shows that they value this information at 1.7 million, and therefore that provides, you know, some evidence of the economic value. Realistically, the, the value is probably higher. And I. Guessing the Astros would probably view it as higher than that, but right, that's well, how the federal government
0: probably represents the rare case of an ML uh, of a major league team wishing it paid its scouts more.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: they can, they pay them what they what they uh, what they're actually worth. It's actually probably it's interesting, right? Because the, there's also some incentive probably for the Astros not wanting to state how much the information they scouts the uh, scouts that they uh, they pay not wanting to state actually how much that information is worth because then uh, they might create a precedent for having to pay scouts more.
1: Potentially there's that issue. Just, you know, they were in kind of a weird position, too, of how much do you want to, you know, from the government side, the criminal side, they want to, you know, play up the the seriousness of the intrusion, but there's also a kind of a PR aspect, you know, an embarrassing aspect of, you know, how much information's got out there. And so there's probably some internal, you know, poll for some people, of you know, do we minimize this? Do we maximize? You know, we you know ex- exaggerate, not exaggerate, but you know, fully state the the ramifications of it.
0: Don't the don't the consequences of this even if even if uh, and of course the, I guess we only know that for a fact that Chris Correa is a guilty party, but it seems as though it, it would well, it wouldn't be surprising, right, if there were other guilty parties as well. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. So the Cardinals had suggested recently, after the events on Friday, they suggested that it was just Chris Correa that they, that was their understanding. The government hasn't said whether there's going to be any other charges or not though, um, and so I think we we still don't know. I, you know, I that was my initial inclination was that it wouldn't just have been one person. Um, some of the things that Chris Correa said. May depending on how you interpret them suggest that other people presumably would have known what was going on, but the cardinals kind of party line it sounds like for right now is there's just one bad actor,
0: yeah, although yes, yeah, I guess this is it, it seems curious because you mentioned it uh, the evidence suggests that Correa accessed the the ground zero what to some went to some uh, trouble it would seem uh, to access the the ground zero uh, database um Insofar as it wasn't just as though he accessed it once and then the password was changed, he didn't pursue it, but he continued to pursue it. Um I don't know if you feel entirely qualified to answer this because it, uh, but, but, how, what do you think, what do you think might have been the calculation going on there as opposed to the value added from gathering the information from just one of the other 29 teams, uh, relative to, again, the possi- possible punishment?
1: I think, um yeah, I mean it's just speculation, obviously. My my in, my gut instinct is there's probably one of those things where he got an inkling that people who had left the Cardinals took stuff with them, knowledge with them that they weren't supposed to be taking to Houston, and so he wanted to he realized that the system existed, figured out a way to potentially access it, and wanted to go in and just try to confirm whether there was proprietary information belonging to the Cardinals in the houston database and he claims on friday that he found that information and we don't know what that information was or whether that's true or not that's kind of one of the emerging questions that have come out recently is you know what do the astros have Hmm. the cardinals and and you know what are the ramifications for that um i think realistically he probably wanted to see did they steal anything and then once he started realizing what he could get access to Mm -hmm. my guess is he started saying oh well I can't keep my hands out of the cookie jar, you know. And somebody online, I forget who it was, pointed out that um, one of the years involved, 2013 or 2014, the Astros and Cardinals were drafting back-to-back. And so there was some benefit for him to know. It wasn't just one out of the other 29 teams. This was the team that was going to be drafting immediately following the Cardinals. And so having some sense of who you know, trusted colleagues, former colleagues valued in that position, you know, could have had particular significance to the Cardinals in that case.
0: Oh, yeah, nefarious. I I will, I will state a personal bias in this matter is that uh, I've always, from afar, uh, been impressed by Chris Correa because, you know, he was, uh, well, he's from New Hampshire, which is was the state from which I was born, and he attended Hampshire College. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular institution.
1: Um. Uh, no.
0: Uh, not. Not intimately. Yeah. It's a. It's a. It's a school uh, in Western Massachusetts that um, doesn't uh, have grades proper. Um, there's just sort of um, uh, written reports are provided on students, and uh, it has this uh, a very, I would say, liberal. Um, uh abiding philosophy to the school you know and in fact uh, the sort of way you graduate is by is by producing a final project that uh, takes up a lot of your senior year at the school it's not the, the point is i mean I, to the best of my knowledge there are zero sports teams except maybe a hacky sack team um and it's uh, not it's not a, it's, not a uh, it's essentially not it's not a school that produces uh, baseball front office members certainly not baseball players on mass
1: um, sure. And I think part of it, I, my understanding, I don't know enough about his background. I know that he was, after that, he went on to do a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Michigan, but he left before then. I, I'm assuming he took an interest in kind of the, psych, the psyche of a Major League Baseball player and that that's what, you know, how one step led to the next, but I, I don't know enough about his background. I really yeah. know why or how he got his foot in the door there.
0: Yeah, well, don't, uh, don't, do, don't do it. Don't do it is the point stay <laughs> because the consequences are pretty dire it, it turns out mm. all right uh when is the uh what, when will we find out all of the results what is the sort of timetable on that uh, particular line of line of events so
1: he pled guilty to five charges of unauthorized access of a computer on friday the government or the court accepted that guilty plea so he's now officially been convicted of five different counts of of criminal violations. And then sometime in April, April 11th, sounds right, if I'm recalling correctly, he will be back in front of the Houston court to be sentenced um, for those crimes. And so the question will be, will he serve jail time? Will it be a fine? Both initial reports suggested he could face three to four years in jail. Um, No, that's not good. No, that's pretty significant. Um, And I think that that's where the perceived value of the information, you know, comes into play. But yeah. until the until the judge decides it's hard to know for sure what the outcome is going to be for Mr. Correa.
0: Wait, can I uh um you don't mind if I ask naive questions, do you? No, not at all. Uh how how let's see. Um what's the naive Your questions
1: question? are your questions are better than you give
0: yourself credit for. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um what, <laughs> what is the incentive to plead guilty to anything?
1: Um Potentially varied. Um, Some people, it's, you know, I've murdered somebody and I feel horrible about it and I just have to get it off my conscience and I just want to, you know, do the right thing. Um, In this case, he, by pleading guilty to the five charges, he avoided getting charged with seven other counts, I think. so. Potentially, it it not only minimizes the number of crimes you're being charged with or the severity of the crimes you're being charged with, it might also um, gain you some more favorable treatment and sentencing. You know, you might be able to say, hey, if I plead guilty to this, will we agree that I'll only do, you know, one year in jail instead of potentially facing 20 years in jail if I'm convicted of the full series of crimes you could charge me with?
0: So it's not a a plea bargain per se, but there is a sense of uh, negotiation with the court.
1: Yeah, I think that this was a plea bargain, as I understand it oh, okay, was, that okay. they have been, been negotiating for a while between the two sides. I think in this case, he probably knew that the evidence was pretty strong against him and it was going to be hard to, <laughs> to to win, and so I'm guessing his attorneys told him to cut a deal, and uh, the, the deal they reached was, you plead guilty on these five counts, and in exchange, we'll um, drop the other ones.
0: Yeah. If that were happening to me, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'd be happy, Um I don't know if you ever have moments, I don't know if you ever have moments, uh, where you consider the entire cosmos, or you attempt to consider the entire cosmos in your head, Nathaniel. It's pretty big. It's yeah, pretty it, big. It, it is big, and in, in the, the, the pleasant effect it has, I consider it liberating, is that in feeling small, I, I'm also liberated from these sort of, you know, these concerns I have every day. I say, well, this thing I have to do, this thing I have to do, uh, this, it makes those things seem less important that could be one of the benefits of uh, imagining the cosmos in your head sure but, and uh, and perhaps uh, if one is uh, uh, you know on the precipice of being sentenced to 4 years in prison uh, perhaps it has that same effect as well but it would st- there's nothing seems very pleasant about the about going to prison really
1: no I'd, that would be one of my worst nightmares i'd say
0: <laughs> Right. i
1: mean i guess it depends on what type of prison i've never been in the you know the so called you know country club type prisons so i don't know how bad those actually are but even then it still probably would not be a
0: particularly pleasant experience have you ever gone to a country club itself rarely yeah only when forced yeah i've only uh, i went one time for a bar mitzvah it was all right uh, no sorry it was a bat mitzvah my fault Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, let's, <laughs> let's end that line of inquiry. Let us uh, let me ask you about the future of tele- televised baseball. Sure. Yeah, um, so, so the thing that's happening, this is the Garber case, yeah? Yes. Why don't you attempt, do you think you're up to a 30-second summary of the case?
1: Sure. So the question in the Garber case is, is Major League Baseball violating antitrust law by assigning its 30 teams, exclusive broadcast territory. So, you know, the fact that the Boston Red Sox cannot broadcast their games in New York City, does that Major League rule prohibiting teams from competing in each other's home television markets? Does that violate the law by illegally restraining trade among potential competitors?
0: Right. And at, at some level, or maybe the at the only important level, the Major League Baseball's case is we are actually doing teams a favor uh, by protecting their broadcasting rights, and in particular, we're helping out the smallest market teams, which maybe or the, or the networks which broadcast those teams, um, because uh, they don't have to worry about a lack of interest in the teams themselves. Major League Baseball is furnishing all of the infrastructure to to provide those broadcasts.
1: Yeah, so that's basically their argument. Is that Major League Baseball's got you know several different arguments all kind of tie together that small market teams. All their games would not necessarily be televised. Were they forced to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs and the more kind of nationally popular teams? So we're helping the Brewers in creating more televised baseball coverage than would exist in a competitive marketplace. And then they talk about the MLB TV and MLB extra innings type out-of-market packages and those things that Major League Baseball says would not exist but for the rules that we have in place. That's basically that's the main gist of MLB's defense here is that we're doing all these things that not just benefit our teams, but benefit more importantly benefit consumers and fans at large. Because if it was just about benefiting the teams, the court wouldn't be as impressed because well, yeah. you know, the teams want to just jack up prices as much as they can and make as much money as they can. So it's really about at the end of the day in the antitrust case, how does this hurt or help consumers in
0: this so case, is baseball it- fans? It, all right. I will say that as a as a, a dummy, for me as a normal dummy, it seems like their case <laughs> is basically one where where they have to present their interests, their stake in in these broadcasts, or their capacity to broadcast these games, as an act of altruism.
1: You yes. Said, yeah, I think that that's. There's. I didn't want to get. I, I was trying to remain really <laughs> neutral in the in the <laughs> yeah. piece. I, I think that there there are, there are criticisms that could be levied against Major League Baseball's arguments here. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll lose, but Judge Steinlin, who's going to be presiding over the case, has definitely seemed skeptical of a little bit of this, that, you know, are you really just doing this for the benefit of fans or is it really about making money here for Major League Baseball?
0: Right. Yeah, because it seems – because the fact that they would that they want to control it would appear to suggest that it's important to them and one doesn't, one assumes uh, by apply, applying Occam's razor to the situation that it's not merely out of the uh, the goodness of their hearts.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and you know, economists would say, you know, what drives you know lower prices and more production of quality goods? It's not a lack of competition; it's more competition, right? You know, usually giving a company a monopoly doesn't enhance you know the mm-hmm. outcome, the the product that they're putting out there and so baseball definitely has a hard kind of road to hoe in that argument i think in court that's part of the reason that they're also trying to argue this idea of competitive balance it's that it's not just necessarily about the number of games that are being televised and the availability of baseball but we're also worried about the yankees being able to sign you know 20 gazillion dollar television contracts that are just going to blow the rest of Major League Baseball out of the water and then, then, you know, it becomes more like the English Premier League or something where realistically there's two, three, four teams that have a chance at the championship each year and everybody else is just playing for second place.
0: Yeah, no, is there, a, is there a way, so that, so that seems like actually, that seems like a credible argument, right? Where you're worried about competitive balance. Is there a way that the court can say, yes, that is a valid concern. What you, what the proper tack to take is, so we're still going to decide against you. We're going to decide in favor of Garber at all. And now, on top of like what we request or we suggest that you that you create um, constraints that uh, on those on the broadcasting that we've now allowed, uh, or you know that you create revenue sharing or to to um, maintain competitive balance in the sport.
1: Yeah, and that that's basically the plaintiffs' kind of counter argument to that is we'll just you know, share more revenue, and then it's all fine. You know, why should customers pay more? If you guys could just spread out the, you know, if there's disparities in revenue, just, just split it between the Yankees and everybody else. And baseball would say, Major League Baseball would say, well, we can't just do that because all of our revenue-sharing rules have to be collectively bargained with the union. And so from the union's perspective, there's all sorts of reasons why they don't want more revenue to be shared because the more revenue that the Yankees have, the more that – They can potentially spend on player salaries, and the better off things are for players. And the the players, you know, even here, probably like the current system because these monopolies produce great, you know, higher television revenues, arguably, and therefore that drives more money to the players. So, for the point, you know, it's not just so simple as waving a wand and saying, "Let there be more revenue sharing," and then magically baseball can do that. There's a lot involved in that process, and I think MLB will just argue, even if theoretically in a perfect world that would be like the better way to do it we can't just unilaterally make that happen ourselves and therefore the court you shouldn't force us to try to have to do that
0: so what is the what is the sort of uh, what's the practical outcome if if uh, if the plaintiffs win in this case
1: so there could be depends on how the judge wants to play it she could do any of a number of different things um these cases can be hard to predict um because not just as a complicated trial of all sorts of, you know, complex economic arguments in general. But if Judge Simon throws out these rules, she's really, you know, fundamentally changing the system of how sports have been broadcast in the United States for the last 50, 60 years. And so... She might get cold feet before just throwing the whole, you know, the baby out with the bathwater entirely. But potentially if she strikes down the whole thing, then you could have massive competition where teams are televising their games in each other's markets. I think realistically what would happen is you'd see that that customers, fans would have the ability to start to subscribe to Nessun or subscribe to the Yes Network if they wanted to. So if I live in St. Louis – I can now just subscribe to Nesson and get all the Red Sox games broadcast through there, just like I would if I lived in Boston, and just watch things that way. I think that that's probably what you'd end up seeing, um, but there's any number of ways it could go.
0: Uh, Regarding a phrase you used, what would be or what have been the punishments levied against uh, parents who have indeed thrown babies out with bathwater?
1: I think probably pretty severe.
0: that's That's frowned upon, isn't it?
1: Yes. Not 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 looked upon kindly.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh is that worse than leaving a than leaving a hot baby? <laughs> no, than leaving a baby in a hot car? <laughs> I don't I don't know what the baby looks like.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably I I think both are discouraged generally.
0: Right. The, yeah. leaving a baby in a car is that's what it's more like uh, negligence, right?
1: I guess the neglig- well, yeah, not to get too technical. Negligence if it was an accident, if it was intentional and it could be Something even more severe.
0: Oh yeah, that'd be worse. Oh speaking of uh, getting technical, you made oh, you made a great um, a great distinction uh, the difference between the difference between defamation and the other thing that's not defamation. Um, and what was what case was this? Because you were talking about defamation, defamation in the oh, case the, of
1: the Ryan Zimmerman and Ryan Howard. Yeah, thing.
0: the Ryan's, the Ryan's Howard, Howard and yep. Zimmerman. And, and there's weird. one thing that's that's defamation, and there's another thing that's the written written version of it, or maybe it's the oh, other way around.
1: Yeah. So for defamation, defamation generally is I'm lying about you, and well, I'm reporting false information about you and harming your reputation, and then. For, you know, it doesn't have any real practical implication, but technically libel is oh, right. um, written um, defamation and slander is verbal defamation. Right.
0: So if I were to say, if I were to say Nathaniel Groh, if I were to say right now, Nathaniel Groh has no idea what he's talking about. He's a, he's not a credible source. Then that's a, that's a, potentially an instance of defamation. No, you'd be, that's an opinion, Oh, so you'd okay. be
1: okay with that. You could say, "I think Nathaniel Grow is a horrible human being," and that's fine. If you say Nathaniel Groh is a child molester,
0: then, that, <laughs> okay. then
1: that's something like more of a. This is a factual. This is what he is. than yeah. Just say I don't. I don't like the guy. I think he's you know kind of a jerk.
0: Oh, uh, so all right, so so it has to be something where the where I appear to be stating a fact about him that would hurt his character. Exactly. Okay. Yes,
1: right. and so the, the 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 safe thing is always to say, "I believe that this is the case," but maybe it's not, and that's kind of you know. Then it's you are not definitively declaring that somebody has done this horrible.
0: What if bad. I were to state right now, I know for a fact that uh, that Nathaniel Groh has has thrown babies out with bathwater.
1: That would be potential. If I could prove, well, yeah, that would be defamation.
0: Okay, <laughs> but what if I were to write it down in a in a post? Is that liable? That would be libel. Liable, liable. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, that is all. Represents a tangent from what we were discussing, which is uh, now. Let me uh, ask you this: What is the what is the timeline on the Garber case?
1: So it goes to trial week from. I don't know if, when this is going to broadcast. It goes to trial on Tuesday of next week, uh, January nineteenth, okay. and the parties have each said that they'll need about a week of court time. So two weeks, although so those things can tend to drag longer than people think, so probably about two to three weeks in the courtroom, and then at that point, one of two things can happen. She could, the judge, Judge Scheinland, could either rule immediately and say this is what's going to happen. Um, more likely, she takes her time and issues a, you know, a lengthy and um, well-thought-out decision that could take months, potentially, um, from what I understand of Judge Shainline, she's one who is definitely deliberate and um, takes her time in making sure she gets everything right. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing probably it will not be a particularly quick process in finding out who's going to win.
0: So, the, so both on the defendant's and the and um, and the plaintiff side, what's what's going on with the the various like actual lawyers involved in the case? Are there? Are there, like, uh, junior members of those particular firms who are busily uh, reading emails, et cetera?
1: Yeah, they're churning. Right now, millions of dollars are being spent right now, probably. Um, So right now, they're getting ready. They're preparing. So basically, during the trial, the lead attorneys for each side will give opening statements, kind of expressing their views on the merits of the matter, and then they'll start to call witnesses. And so they're probably doing final witness prep and... In some cases, some of that testimony has already been pre-recorded, so they might even be doing, you know, video editing type stuff to get the the segment that they want of that relevant testimony prepared to be able to air in court. Um, preparing final motions and legal arguments about, you know, this side shouldn't be able to do this, that side shouldn't be able to do that. Lots of lots of work goes into it. Right in the um, yeah, in the it sounds like a lot well. of work. Massive, yeah.
0: If that's going to cut in. You know, you're supposed to get like a. Eight hours of sleep a night, and I'm guessing some of these people aren't.
1: Probably not. Oh. I'm guessing eight hours in two nights if they're lucky. Probably.
0: Do you get eight hours of sleep as a as a uh, as a, a law professor at the business school?
1: Um, my wife and I both are kind of grouchy if we don't get enough sleep, so yeah. we try to, but realistically, life gets in the way sometimes.
0: That's true. And also, you have a you have a small child, I think, right?
1: That can get in the way as well, yes.
0: Right, yeah. They have. Uh, they like to keep early hours, from what I've observed.
1: Yeah, she's pretty good, but um, so we can't complain about her sleep schedule, but mm. um, it, you don't always get quite as much as you'd like.
0: Well, just a word from the wise, Nathaniel, don't throw her out with any bathwater.
1: No, I will not. Accidentally
0: our, or otherwise, <laughs> yeah.
1: Our bathtub is fully cemented into the uh, the flooring of the bathroom.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's very good. Okay, uh, I've I've harassed you for probably longer than than it seemed like I would originally. Uh, is there anything I know that you've written? You've written a number of posts, and my my point here is, what what I've wanted to do this is to is to to get to know you, to allow our readers to get to know you, so that when your work comes up, they will know that they're dealing with they know what sort of person they're dealing with. That's a top notch person.
1: Well, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, I so, do. Some
1: would beg to differ, but I appreciate that. Um
0: are they guilty of defamation
1: um i i plead the fifth on that one
0: okay okay uh, is there anything that we that i we've overlooked here that uh, absolutely needs to be discussed um nothing that has
1: to be discussed i mm-hmm. mean there's i didn't get into it a lot in that the post about the um the piece about the garber case it could be really fascinating to see what happens you know, this could fundamentally change, not just the way television is broadcast, but then because so much of the revenue is from television, you could change the way the whole game is really, you know, thought about in terms of, you know, the economics of the game. There's potentially the ripple effects of that decision are potentially, you know, enormous, and how that all shakes out will be interesting to see should the the plaintiffs prevail on that one. and then? The other big story that people probably paid more attention to is just the collective bargaining negotiations that are forthcoming here in the next few weeks. But that's a whole different ball of wax. There.
0: That's right. In terms of so far as balls of wax are concerned.
1: Yes. Uh, it's it's probably not the right phrase.
0: Ball of yarn. Ball of yarn. The yeah. the the um, you mentioned because it, well the, the, that of course is what has driven a lot of the, um, the increased spending. Um, by major league teams is, is the is the revenue they've gotten from large television contracts.
1: It definitely helps, for sure. And, you know, and you could see it cutting two ways. So, like, the, the first thought is, oh, well, if theoretically there's more competition and the competition lowers the price because now the teams don't have these local monopolies and can charge, you know, $3 billion for their television rights, that that's going to lower the salaries. But then on the other hand, if teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Cubs now have, all of this new potential these new potential pots of money that they can exploit it's in some ways going to motivate teams to be even more competitive because the more you know the stronger you are the more you know demand there is for your games and your packages that you can sell and so it could go either way right maybe teams spend even more because there's even more emphasis on trying to cre- create the best team possible or maybe the players get a lot less because the whole television you know what some say is a television bubble pops, and it'll be interesting to see what would happen if we go down that path.
0: Okay, all right. Well, uh, you definitely have uh, fulfilled your obligation. Thank you very much, Nathaniel Grow.
1: Thank you for having me. All
0: right. Well, stick around for one second, but in the meantime, I will say that is Nathaniel Grow. He is a professor at the Terry School of Business at the University of Georgia.
1: Correct, Terry College, but either
0: one's fine. Terry College right, at the University, of Virginia. and also a contributor, an excellent contributor on legal matters to Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.